0: I had been continuing to have these experiences and I wanted to understand. I'm like, am I, I know I'm not making them up because I'm getting so many communications from him. And I just know in my heart and soul, I know in my full being that it's him. But then he started to give me communications that I could objectively validate.
1: Hi. Hi. I'm Dr. Amy Robbins, and welcome to Life, Death, and the Space Between. I'm a licensed clinical psychologist and medium, and here we explore life, death, consciousness, and what it all means. Today's the first episode of my new season. This is my sixth season, I think. I started in 2018, the end of 2018. So, um, I am. Returning to my roots in some way, and and really why I started this podcast was I had gone through my own experiences of grief and had had multiple visits from my loved one, my Aunt Linda, who passed away, and then started opening up more and more to others, to my own loved ones, to patients' loved ones, and it really started to open up this world for me around grief and grieving and loss and mediumship. And as a psychologist, I felt like there was no place for me to go. I felt like there was nowhere I belonged. I was afraid to share these experiences with a larger outside community because I was so scared of what people thought would think, I thought it would undermine my credibility as a therapist, as a psychologist working under a license, but yet I couldn't deny the reality of these experiences, how powerful they were for me, how transformative and healing they were for me, but also the possibility that they could be transformative for others as well. And so I, when I came across Dr. Lenore Matthews' work, I was so moved. I felt like if I had only known her sooner, I think the trajectory of my life would have looked a lot different than it does. And so I'm so excited to welcome Lenore to the show today. She's become a friend. Um, just to give you all a little background, Lenore holds a PhD and master's in social work with expertise in research evaluation and evidence-based practice, as well as grief and trauma. And she is trained as an evidential medium and a young widow by suicide loss. So her abilities for mediumship opened up similar to mine after, well, hers was after her husband unexpectedly passed away in 2020. Um, And now she's working to bring research and real credibility to the mediumship world as a tool for helping to heal grief. So that was a very long introduction. I don't normally go that long, but it is so important what you're doing, and I'm so excited to welcome you to the show today, to call you a new friend, and
0: to talk to you about the work you're doing. So welcome. Thank you, Amy, so much for having me. It is a pleasure, and I already have goosebumps all over. One of my signs that you know spirit is close and that we're intuitively in, and it's just, it feels right. This conversation is so important. And there are so many of us who have had this experience of an intuitive awakening after a loved one crosses, but we don't talk about it in society, especially in the mental health world.
1: If you love the show, then show the love. There's so many ways you can support the podcast. You can rate and review the podcast anywhere you get your podcast. So go ahead and do that. You can subscribe to the podcast. So make sure you're subscribed. So every time a new podcast drops, You get that podcast the minute it drops. You can also follow me on social media at Dr. Amy Robbins. You can share the podcast or share any clips that you see that I share on my social media to others. That helps me gain traction. It helps other people hear and know about the messages that I am spreading here on this podcast. And you can also become a Patreon subscriber. If you go to Patreon and put in Dr. Amy Robbins, there are three tiers to subscribe, five, ten, and $20 a month that is less. $5 is less than a cup of coffee. And it allows me to continue to bring you great content. It allows me to continue to get the support that I need to produce the show, to reach out to great guests and to just stay sane, frankly. I am so grateful for those of you who have already supported the podcast. It is what has kept me going over all this time. So if you could give anything to the podcast, I would be so grateful. You have no idea what it means to me to get that support. It is completely self-funded at this point. It has been for six years, but for the support that you all have given me, and I would love more of it. So thank you all so much for what you've already done, for sharing the love, for spreading the word. And now, back to this week's episode of Life, Death, and the Space Between.
2: Life is full of what-ifs, some awesome, like what if
1: AI could fold your laundry? let's start with kind of your journey and then we can talk about a little bit more about some of the research you're doing and the amazing places that are asking you to come speak to them about these experiences because yeah. people are really, you're, I mean, we're talking people who might not have you know, who were very trepidatious about this are
0: now opening up. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, so my experience began when my late husband Bruno passed away in twenty twenty. Um, as you said, he he died by suicide. It was completely unexpected and out of the blue. So sorry. Thank you. Um, and you know, it's been three and a half years and it's still hard to talk about. It's yeah. And I talk about it all the time in my work, but it's something that's that's always with me. And as as a part of that, and it's something that's been the most healing aspect of loss and grief and, and life has been when he crossed, the night that he passed was the first time he came to me mediumistically. Um, that was an incredible experience, um, and I'm happy to go into it. Yeah, but I would really... love to hear. Okay, so he passed, it was March 5th, 2020. Um, he passed in the morning, and um, again, it was completely out of the blue, of course, looking back in retrospect, and we know this as mental health practitioners, there usually are indications and signs, but oftentimes they're so subtle, especially in men's mental health. He he displayed no outward signs that he was navigating anything traumatic and, and definitely not that he had suicidal ideation or tendencies. Um, and he crossed around 11 in the morning and the whole day was just, I mean, it was absolute chaos. Um oh the night of his passing i was in a hotel room around the corner from the police station where i'd spent the day with our friends who were with me um and we were you know working with the detective and it was it was very clearly Um, suicide, he'd left letters and and other indications that there was no question. Of course, as his wife and, you know, we were together 13 years, his partner and his best friends were there, best friends from childhood, and none of us could wrap our head around it, so we were with the police for for several hours. Um, And we stayed at a hotel room around the corner from the police station, and none of us wanted to be alone. Um, This was in another country as well, we were expats, we were living abroad. Um, so this was all in my second language. We were living in Spain, um, so all of this was was not in my in my first language. Meanwhile, my best friend and my mom and my sister had just boarded a plane to come to Spain to. They found out the news. Um, this was also early March, 2020. So right, right before Colombia. COVID is just rumbling across the world. Nobody knows what's going to happen. Um, so it's just it's absolute chaos. So we're in the hotel room crammed together. There were four of us and obviously I'm not sleeping. I didn't understand. I felt like I was in a movie and the window out of nowhere slammed open. And I sat up in bed and it was complete darkness. I sat up in bed and Bruno was there. He was there. Like just, I could feel him. It's as if someone, you know, walks up in through the front door and you just know that they're there. You know, their energy and presence. And I felt him like swirling around me, swirling in me, like in and out of my body. And it felt just like just like an energy or an, an, an air, a fog in and out, in and out of my body. And I said, I remember saying out loud, I know it's you, I know it's you, I know it's you, but I don't understand. So please show me. And I th- I don't know. Looking back, I think I meant I don't understand that you've crossed. I don't understand anything. Right. Nothing makes sense. Nothing Nothing makes sense. sense. Exactly. And I fell immediately into some sort of like meditative trance. And my soul, I think, had been preparing me for what was coming um, a few months before we had taken a sabbatical to South Asia and Southeast Asia, and I was really all of a sudden very interested in yoga and meditation, just out of nowhere. And um, I had been working at the United Nations. I was a research analyst at the UN and I resigned from my position and I didn't know what it was, but I was like, something is guiding me forward. I know I'm going to start my own clinical or my own practice and work somehow more clinically, moving out of policy. I had no idea where this is coming from, but I knew that it was time to to move forward. Um well and so, it's
1: like a push and a pull, right? Like yes. you feel it and you you resist it, but yes. then
0: it's like it's like it pulls you. Yes. Absolutely. Especially having no framework for this. I mean, this was out of nowhere. And I, again, Bruno was not showing any signs of, of what he was going through. And so I, I had no idea. But anyway, so I just kind of trusted into this. So he went on this sabbatical for a few months and practicing yoga and meditation. And I, I feel like that somehow prepped me for being able to fall into this meditative state, but he's then flash forward back to the first night that he came to me. It's in and out, in and out of my body. And I fall into this trance And I see kind of these images and it's scaring me because I've never really had something like this before happen. Well, obviously not. And I just hear over and over the word in Spanish, which is Bruno's first language. I hear rabia, 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 which means like anger, fury. And I can tell that he is angry. like He can't even believe what he's done is how I, I interpreted it. And I just kept saying, I love you. I love you. I love you. Please keep showing me. And that first kind of swirling dissipated, and it went almost blank, complete stillness, a stillness I don't think I've ever felt in my body before. And then all of a sudden, and this is in my mind's eye, but it's playing out crystal clear, looks like a movie. And I'm on the bank of a river. It's purplish brown water. And keep in mind, this is in the hotel room next to all of our friends, right? Right, right. And, and I'm in, totally tracking this. I'm like, I've yes, got you. I know. I know this experience. Yes, yes, yes. And those who of us who've had it, it's it's there are uncanny similarities in our experiences. But I'm on the bank of a river, this purplish brown water, and I can feel Bruno all around me, but I know he's not there. I can hear like thudding music. I can smell barbecue. I can smell beer. I look around and I see people in like soccer jerseys. He's Argentinian. So I mean, soccer is like their religion, right? So soccer jersey, shorts, flip flops. And I just know all of a sudden I say out loud, I remember I said out loud, I know what you're telling me. And I know what he's saying is he doesn't want a funeral, nothing formal, nothing religious. And he just impresses on me that he wants to be cremated and offered to this river. And then I recognize the river. It's a river in his hometown a place that brought him a lot of happiness.
1: Well, and I th- can I stop you for just one yes. second? I think what's so I'm like captivated here, but I think what's so important in, in this story, in this experience is that people, when they're looking for these experiences, often think they are going to come to them in the form of clear. Hi, I'm here. Yeah. I, I want you to know that I want to be cremated, not yep. buried. I want a funeral or I don't want a funeral. And that's not, this is what this illustrates so beautifully. That's not at all what this is. Yes. It's this amazing combination of like this clairvoyance, but also this claircognizance cognizance of you just knowing at a soul level of a deep deep connection of how we are so deeply connected particularly to our loved ones but to one another but to the the people we love that the communication is just there it's just
0: knowing yes and there are there are puzzle pieces that kind of fit together and even when i was practicing as a mediums, so I used to do one-on-one client readings. Now I'm more focused on research and direct practice in terms of practice of helping people develop their own mediumship with their loved ones through grief but it sometimes comes down in puzzle pieces and we don't have the context necessarily. And so we've got to kind of piece it together. But in these first communications with Bruno, and these happened then, I mean, there were, I've documented all of them, of course, being the researcher that I am, um, and they were multiple times a day for weeks and they still happen now. Um, so in this, I, I kind of cut you off, but I don't, I want to go back there. Cause I want
1: people to hear the continuation of the story. So you see all of these images, you know, yeah. this is what he wants and yeah. then kind of take us through what, what continues okay. to happen or what yes. happens next.
0: Yes. And I, well, I should say as context as well, I'm getting tongue tied too, and I start to really, I get, to, I'm so, yes. I know I'm like, oh. uh, Lenore, yes. I'm
1: going to visit Lenore too. You should all know. I don't know when yet, but.
0: Yes, the door open. I live in Hawaii. It's an incredible, beautiful space. We have an incredible grief healing community here. Um, but yes, so I need to say as context, Bruno and I had never talked about death like we didn't have, you know, we didn't even have life insurance. We were in our mid 30s. And life was really good. Like finally, after you know, grad school, I was in my PhD. He did a master's in at Illinois, where I did University of Illinois, where I did my doctorate. Um, and he got a full ride as a master's student in engineering. And his second language. And you know, we lived in um, Switzerland for my job when I was at the UN. We lived in Belgium for his job in engineering. life had been so beautiful, but it had been you know wild. And we were finally just settling down, and. Now, of course, looking back as a mental health practitioner, I understand that it was kind of like the, the settling after the perfect storm. There's no longer distractions. There's that. But there were also things that culminated in his, in his you know, in his grief area, I'm sorry, his trauma experience that he had kept inside. But fast forward. So we never talked about, you know, do what do we want when we pass and these kinds of things. Um, and in my family, we don't cremate, we bury. And so I was not familiar with this for that to come up was something i mean it just it wouldn't have come from my conscious mind um and so the next day the medical examiner called, and of course, a friend intercepted and then relayed it to me gently um, as you know as his wife I wasn't prepared to take a call from the morgue, uh, but they said this is what his wife wants a few weeks later, about a month and a half, i want to say six weeks, I saw my first medium and It really was because I had been continuing to have these experiences and I wanted to understand. I'm like, am I, I know I'm not making them up because I'm getting so many communications from him. And I just know in my heart and soul, I know in my full being that it's him. But then he started to give me communications that I could objectively validate. So I know that these are real and I know it's Bruno, like he's my, you know, my, the love of my life until then, like my soulmate, all of these things, like, of course I know it's him, but still my human mind and my researcher side are like, what is going on?
1: So what I talked were to some of those communications and how were those coming through?
2: Let's get this dinner party started. So,
0: one of them, and again, it still is hard for my heart. Um, yeah,
1: and if it's too personal, no, like, no, no, no. not at all, totally not at
0: fine. all. No, not at all. And it's more the reason I think that you know there's the hesitation is because I'm in such a different place now in my life. To go back there is like, God, I just have so much love for him and me in those moments and our friends and, you know, everyone who was just so shocked and debilitated, including Bruno in that moment. Mm-hmm. Um, but the first week, for example... I just felt him, and this was a different experience, an impression more than anything that he gave me. It was just like I just a feeling of him through me, and he, I call them honey baths. He would like wash over me head to toe in this warm honey that just brought me peace, and then sometimes that would happen, and then he would give up other information. But for example, one thing that happened was he just impressed on me so clearly, go to my computer, find this hidden file, and there's more information there. I didn't even know that you could hide files on a computer, (laughs) like, okay. Um, And I did, and it was exactly as he indicated. I know that he set it up for me to find. And in those files were writings that he had put together over many, many months. And they actually began when I was called to start meditation. He also was called to somehow, for the first time, perhaps, touch his own trauma, which, as I uncovered... Mm -hmm. guided by him and what he left and what he guided me to that I could objectively validate he had gone through horrific 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 abuse as a child and he never got help for it and that is now I know and even as a social worker I wasn't fully you know educated I think and I'm shocked that I wasn't um but I also know that I think even if I had been from, you know, a clinical or an academic side, I still wouldn't have noticed the signs because we're not looking for those things in the people that we love and we can't even fathom it in the people that we love.
1: And people are really good at hiding what they don't want to be seen.
0: Yes. Yeah. One of our friends said, as all this was coming out, she's like, Bruno really deserves an Oscar. He was... And, and I mean, that was his coping. He, mm-hmm. and it was also him. Like he is that beautiful, kind, fun, loving. I mean, he was the most joyful, jovial, n- everyone wanted to be around him. And that was him. But part of that too, was a mask that he carried. And that's so important in, you know, in, in talking about trauma and healing and and especially in suicide loss, because it's so common. Um. So, yeah, so those were, or some of, I mean, there are many, many more, um, and other things that were more subjective, like he came to, and I can go back to that. Um, so I'll go back to the media. There's so many different angles here, but there's I know, so much. Well,
1: you could come back. We could just talk for a couple hours, whatever works. For so, days and, days. and
0: I know we're going to continue talking as we have been talking before. And so a hundred percent, absolutely. Um, but yeah, so there were other validations. But then fast forward to the medium who I saw six weeks after. So I see the medium for the first time. It's now we're full blown in lockdown. Um, I moved back to the US. I moved back to my my. I stayed with my parents for a year, just in complete shock. Not even grieving yet. In shock. Right. Like just trying um, to like stabilize. Not even say Like I was just in this cloud of what the hell happened. Mm-hmm.
1: Um,
0: just complete. You know, it's, it was trauma. It was not even, it was like the epitome of the most obliteration, obliterating trauma that could ever happen. When I sit with the medium, it's on Zoom. Bruno led me to him as well. And I thought that it was honestly like total rubbish. I <laughs> thought that the person would rip me off. I was like, this is crazy. This is wild. Um, I made a list of 28 questions and kept it hidden as the, does, as the researcher
1: does.
0: As the researcher does. Yes. And I said if he doesn't answer all 28 of these, then I this is I, I don't believe in it at all. Of course, like now I know I'm like the worst client ever. Being a medium now, right? Who has done hundreds of readings for other people. Um, but as, as soon as we sat down, it was just like this door opened to this incredible energy and flow. I'm nervous, I'm scared. My grandparents come in at first, which I'm like, I love my grandparents, but like, didn't come here to see them. Right, exactly. Now as a medium, I know that oftentimes someone who's been on the other side, oftentimes a grandma or grandpa will come in first to kind of set the stage, open the door, raise the vibration. Now I know that, but then I was just kind of like, oh, hmm, okay. And then Bruno comes in so clearly. And he's like, you have a soccer loving partner on the other side, don't you? I'm like, yes. And very quickly, he went into the mental chaos that Bruno had hidden. Um, I mean, just the, the nuances of it. But, and I'll say, actually, before I go forward with getting back to the river, because it does come full circle, um, where Bruno was six weeks having crossed over, his understanding of where he was in his experience was very different than it is now. I mean it was very much kind of parallel to where I was. He was still trying to understand. He was still unpacking what had happened to him as a kid and as an adult. He as was As he was on the other side. Yes.
1: So how did you how did
0: you know that? Like what was the process of it all for you? It's like as he would come forth, and I could feel it when he come would come to me in meditations. He was, you know, harried. He was trying to figure it out and then he would reveal to me pieces as well through our meditations. And then whenever I would sit with a medium, so tight-lipped, again, I'm like the worst client, so tight-lipped, gave them nothing. Or maybe I'm the best client. Actually, mediums right. love when you give them nothing, right. right? Um, And then they would reveal these pieces. So it was like incrementally understanding. And then not only like uncovering what had happened to him, but then really like starting to understand and unpack that nuance it of how it related to his behaviors over time, like how closed he could be, why he was, you know, he wouldn't ever talk about seeing a therapist, these kinds of things. He didn't want to go there. He couldn't go there. Mm -hmm. Uh, So he was starting to understand this on the other side in a way that he wasn't able to, when he was in the physical. And to that end, like I'm so grateful that he is able to go there and he has, but I know he's in a very different place, spiritually, emotionally, where he is on the other side now, but he finally allowed himself to, to heal and to open these things. And a lot of it was that he would give me pieces of his story. I could validate them here and then talk about it. And so like, we know his friends and I know his friends are like his brothers. We know what happened to him and we still love him. And these are the things that he couldn't heal when he was here.
1: Wow. And talk about when we think about why people might Choose, if we're talking from the perspective of like a soul contract and choice, to cross over and be able to heal and help others heal from the other side. I feel like this is such a perfect illumination when people say that of what they mean by that. Like it sounds like he could not have done what he needed to do in a physical
0: body. I think so, given the context that we have. That being said, he has just I mean, reiterated and reiterated to me that that suicide and I don't know if it's choice or if it's deciding or if it's like landing on, I don't know what the, what the word is, but the act of suicide does not resolve the pain. And I've also felt, and my sister is also very intuitive. She's felt this from him, other mediums as well. I do feel that he wishes that he had done it differently, Mm. but we didn't have, and I, and I don't, you know, hold this against him. He didn't have the knowledge to understand. We like we did the best that we could, and he did the best that he could with what he had. That being said, there's two things that he's said and done since he's been on the other side that, to me, just like blows my mind. One, I know, I know for a fact he's working with other survivors of child abuse and childhood sexual abuse, which is what he endured, that are here in the physical world. Because those people have come to me some people I don't even know—they've DMed me or emailed. Of like, I can't explain this, but I read an article that you wrote, for example, about your husband's suicide and, and childhood sexual abuse, and it's encouraged me to finally get help. Um, a short film has been made about our story that I didn't actually have anything to do with. It. it came to me, and they let me know we've made this film and we're submitting it, you know, to film festivals. And it was inspired by your story. And by the way, we know other survivors that feel Bruno around them. I mean, so many people have said, and like, just like these signs, he's, oh, he's magic. He's absolute magic. The other thing, Amy, that he said to me, and this has been to me as we have very different trauma experiences, Bruno and I, he had complex trauma. And that is what a child into adult suffers when they have, or endures, when they've been repeatedly exposed to trauma. The complex, it's compounded over years, over time, multiple instances I have, and I live with this every day, not CPSD. So he has complex, right? C-P-T-S-D. Yes. (laughs) Thank you. And I live with PTSD. So it's from a single instance, very different. And still they both are highly correlated, obviously with things like suicidal ideation. Mm -hmm. And I don't know one other widow especially a widow in their thirties. I don't know one other widow. I don't know one other survivor of proximate suicide loss who hasn't contemplated themselves. And I'm adamant about saying that out loud because we have to be able to say it. And there were, what
1: we know is when we say it in the therapeutic field, we know when we talk about suicide, when we explore that as a possibility, it does decrease the likelihood of someone acting on it. It's a very important thing. If you're a clinician to know If you are a friend to know, it is okay to talk about it.
0: It helps reduce the likelihood of acting on it. Yes, 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 yes. Thank you. Yes. I mean, you've heard it here first from Dr. Amy, psychologist. Yes. And in my experience and in my body, why that was, is I wasn't carrying a secret. And the same of naming that Bruno died by suicide. I'm not going to say it was an accident because it wasn't. Mm -hmm. And he made that clear that it wasn't. He left letters. He made it very clear. And so why would I carry a secret? And he and I would feel this from him in dreams and meditations of don't do what I did. Like, let it out. Get healing. And I know that he's led me through the healing. But the other thing that he did um, that was just so poignant and so clear was he made it very clear to me that we have to heal what we've gone through if it's on that side or this side. And if we don't heal it on this side, we're going to heal it on that side. However, and he's made this so adamantly clear, and I just hold this so close when I went through those moments of, I don't know if I can survive this. When we heal on this side, this is when we get to change our path. This is when we get to affect our livelihoods for the better. This is where we get to actually live. And this is where we get to affect the people around us and the environments around us.
1: And would he have also said this is where we get to change trajectories of trauma, of repeated yep. transgenerational or ancestral trauma that we hold, that we carry, that we bring down? Yes.
0: Yes, 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 yes. So many yeses, and so I feel like it's really important to underscore this from someone a, as a suicide survivor myself, but then as Bruno who who died by suicide, it's so important in the mediumistic world and in the mental health world, but I would say more in the spiritual mediumistic world to not romanticize suicide as like okay, they get to heal on the other side and it's all grand. No, it's been horrific work, and I know that, and horrific in terms of like how hard it's been on me it I know that it's been heavy on him I know that he's in a place of light and love and goodness but I wonder sometimes I don't live in the past I don't let myself do that and I don't need to do that but I do wonder sometimes of like maybe in some other plane is it playing out in a different way where he did get help on this side
1: mm-hmm.
0: and who yeah. knows well and from the perspective of soul contracts
1: you know, yeah. we, I touched on that earlier there are many people who say you can change a sole contract. Isn't that's your exit point for sure. A hundred percent. Right. Like this is where I think sort of this quantum piece ties in is like you, you have, it's a sliding door and you have other choices to make
0: always. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And so the other piece to this, I have to say is, And I know this as a medium, but I know this as a survivor of suicide loss. Suicide is so complex and there are so many underlying reasons why it may happen. And working with the suicide loss community, I mean, we all have a different story. I will say childhood sexual abuse is a common um, underlying factor, but it's not universal or ubiquitous for all experiences. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, in the mental health world, we see suicide as like it's kind of portrayed as You know, it's a battle against an illness and it's one single illness that everyone has and you lost your battle. And that's so erroneous. Yeah, I don't I certainly don't see it that way. Right. Yeah. And I guess to on one hand, it's a step forward and that we're not villainizing it. Um, We're finally moving away from words like committed suicide, like it's not a crime. Um, But we really need to get to the underlying. It's not just a disease that you pass from. No, there are reasons why it happens. And it's so important to unpack that because I believe both from making changes here in this world, as we understand why suicide happens, those are the beautiful golden nuggets of why a soul has come back to impart goodness And also those are the spaces where a human being can heal from. And so whether it's, you know, whether it was something traumatic that happened, maybe someone had, you know, I know someone who had a traumatic brain injury and it physically affected them, or sorry, I know their surviving loved ones. The person who had the TBI passed by suicide, but that affected them their physical well-being and they didn't want to live in that body anymore. I mean, there's so many different reasons why it happens.
1: Well, and I think it's like
0: any mental
1: illness. Like I don't think of mental illness as there's this is a diseased brain and there's only one way it got that way. It's like, Mm -hmm. there's a person that is displaying symptoms of, but but what is, I need to understand what is, who is the person. Yeah, absolutely.
0: And, And they get to understand who they are underneath because, you know, as Bruno showcases really with his beautiful story. And I know that he does it with lightness and, and love now. I mean, he didn't even know his full story.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, and as he started to uncover it in those months before he passed, and the letters and writings that he he compiled, and he was starting to uncover it, but he didn't let himself go there. Going back to that first medium, I want to say there's there's a yeah, yeah, really yeah, yeah, yeah. beautiful like tying it together there, right? So <laughs> it's it was you know amazing. He he brought forth these different evidential pieces, um, and and then at one point he said, I'm getting this image that Bruno is showing me. First of all, you would understand that he wanted to be, or wants to be, wants to be, as he said in present tense. I remember that he wants to be cremated. And I said, yes. And I'm still skeptical. So I'm like, okay, he's got a 50-50 chance here. Like I'll give it to the medium on this one. Um, And I also know as a disclaimer, if I had chosen something else for Bruno, if he had, if I had chosen for him to be buried, I know that Bruno would have been, so beautifully fine with that because as his surviving that's who he was yes and i think all spirits are they know that we are doing the best that we can especially in moments of shock and trauma um but you know i i leaned into and trusted what he had said and so the medium says you understand he wants to be cremated and i said yes and i was like okay in my mind i'm like i'll give that to you and he's like you understand that he doesn't want a formal funeral he wants something like a party for him i said yes And then the medium goes, and you understand it's on a very important river body of water, very important to Bruno. And I was like, yes. And I just started like bawling in the reading. And I was in, of course, I unpacked it with myself and journaling and, and with my own grief therapist after And what that did for me, I mean, this was very early on when all of these experiences are happening in very early traumatic loss and very early, haven't even gotten to grief yet because I'm still in shock. That did two things for me, that reading. One, it validated that, yes, Bruno is still here. And two, it validated that not only is he still here, but that I'm able to communicate with him. There's no way that that medium would have had this information. I wasn't on any sort of professional social media. I didn't have my blog up. That was a year later that I opened it. Even my personal social media, I had closed after Bruno Dykes. So I just wanted quiet to process. And when we didn't do an obituary, he didn't know. I mean, we were also in Spain, so it was a whole nother country. There's absolutely no way. And the only people who knew this story were like my parents and my best friends and the friends of us who were there at the morgue. And so there, I mean, there's no way. And I know that we hear this all the time when we talk about music, like, there's no way they could have known, but there really was no way that he could have known. And so that was like the first for me check of like, okay, there's something here. I still didn't totally believe it yet. I was still very skeptical. (laughs) I still am skeptical and I do this work, but it was the first kind of like, okay, this, there's, I'm not quote unquote crazy. I'm not imagining this. And there is valid evidence here.
1: And Then you decided, well, not just then, it wasn't like in that (laughs) moment, but we have very we talked about this when we first spoke, you know, a a little while ago, is we had very have very similar paths and that then we both kind of dove in to mediumship. Yeah. So can you tell us a little bit about that and what that looked like for you?
0: Yeah. So it was until about November. So he passed in October. It was about November. And by November, so this is what, six, seven, seven months. Um, By November, I had really uncovered to a place where my body said, I have enough. I had my why. Um, I did what I could to address the situation, working with Bruno. And also, I know that he is working through his karma and those things on his side. Um, And I got to a point, it was seven months. That's what it was a very clear juncture in my experience of like, that's when I started to grieve. Because up, in, up until then, it was like full speed ahead, understand what happened to my husband. I felt like my husband was, it was like I was searching for a missing person. And it was like everything that, well,
1: you, kind you know, everything of were. that we,
0: sorry. I said you kind of were. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. So it's like 13 years together with someone. And then all of a sudden this on the underbelly is now reality is like, what is reality? And then all of these experiences are happening on top of, and we have the meditations, we have the dreams, we have the confirmations, but then we also have things like electronics blowing up in my house and the lights and cold drafts. And I wrote an article and on my website, but finding objects moving and finding them in my path and things that shouldn't have been there that almost materialize. And it's just like, what is going on? Again, And would you talk to him
1: in those times? Oh yeah. Okay. I just want, I, I sort of asked the question rhetorically, but I wanted people to hear that. Like, that's, that's a part of this process. That's a part of the developing of the relationship. Yeah. It's a different relationship, but it can still be a relationship in that way.
0: Yeah. And sometimes I hear him back. I mean, I still talk to him every day. I say good morning, good night when I'm driving. I feel like sometimes my Spotify will go to a, like a random Ramones song and he loves the Ramones. And I'm like, okay, like we're listening to the Ramones on the highway today. So it is. Um, sometimes I like physically feel him next to me. Um, actually, I dreamt about him. Oh, that's so funny. I just clicked. This just clicks now. I dreamt about him last night and I haven't dreamt in a while. Um, oh. That was a really nice dream as well. Thank you for, for reminding absolutely. me of that. Be <laughs> I know sometimes it gets hard. Yeah,
1: yeah But then yeah. I do find like it comes back, and you're like, oh. Hmm.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Wow. Yeah, it was seven months, and I went back to that same medium. And, and I'd seen two other mediums during one was not a great experience, and then another one who was also a licensed therapist. She was amazing. Um, and they're all very well-known, very reputable work, you know, celebrity mediums They're I don't know how I was able to get sessions with them, but I know that it was guided and they're now mentors of mine. They're very, um, they're incredible, um, and friends as well. Uh, but I went back to the first medium and I asked him, you know, I just checked in and I was like, you know, I have, I got some more confirmations of things that, that I had uncovered by now. I'm more kind of like gentle with mediums. I'm not as skeptical, but still pretty close, close mouthed. um, and he said in this conversation, this was another, like, oh, my goodness moment in my at another, oh, my goodness juncture. And he said, Lenore, you know, you have this. And I was like, and up, up until that point, and I had been very open with my own therapist about these things. She was very affirming. Um, She's like, you're not the first and you're not the last to tell me that their loved one talks to them. I've been a grief therapist for a very long time. But no one had said, you know, this is like, you've got this. It's valid. Right. So. He says, Lenore, you have this. And my first reaction was like, oh, no, no, thank you.
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs> no, thank you. You can have it back. Right. And he's like, no, you've got this. You, ha- you have some of this. You know that. And I was like, what do I have? Like, what do I have? You know, and I'm still envisioning like white labs, white lab coats. Am I going to lose even more than I've already lost? Am I going to be you know, institutionalized and lose my right. family, my sisters, my parents, my friends, when I've already lost so much losing Bruno, physically at least? And he's like, no, you, you have this. I know that you can talk to spirits. And by then as well, I have to say, I'd begun other spirits had begun coming to me in my meditations with objective information and spirits who I didn't actually know in the physical world, but I knew their loved one here. And I would write the messages and they would be validated when I passed them on. Now I understand as well, the ethics of, of passing on, you know, um, unrequested messages, but anyway, yes. that had happened. Yep. 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 Yes. Um, yes. 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 <laughs> yes. Now we know, um, but naive and like, com- again, completely in this world of what is this? I didn't, um, but he said you have this and all of us who have this, we all have it to some extent, but when you've been open, when the door has literally been slammed open, when you're on this fast track, when, your loved one who you trust and know so well has brought you there or has brought themself there and you're there and your energies are both there together in this, you know, this meeting of the two worlds. He's like, we all get to decide what we do with this. You could acknowledge it and let it go. You could develop it, whatever it is. And then that was kind of the end of the conversation. I didn't ask from there. So that night I was talking to Bruno and I said, just guide me. And like he always does. He guides me to exactly where I need to be every time. And whether it's him, whether it's another energy, whether it's my own soul, whether, you know, I still consider maybe it's my own subconscious, who knows? Um, but I said, just guide me. And so I fell asleep. And in the middle of the night, he always has this beautiful three to four a.m. hour. And I'm just like, oh, can we like reschedule? But so, you know, it's in the middle of the night and I like, again, just upright, slam upright in bed, grab my laptop, slam my glasses on, I think, I think I put my, maybe I was like against <laughs> the screen. And I just am led on this chain, this Google search. And this has happened several times since I can't replicate the search, but it led me to exactly where I need to be. And I found a, a center outside of Boston, I was in, you know, in Florida at this point, but a center in Boston that was doing a past life regression workshop. And I had read Brian Weiss because Dr. Brian Weiss, you know, head of Mount Sinai. Yale-educated psychiatrist, anyone who was to me as a doctor of social work, anyone that I trusted or saw as quote-unquote credible or valid, I was just devouring anything research evidence.
1: I always say he's the gateway drug to this. Yes, for 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 those of us who are really science-based and want, well, really for everyone, I think. But I think he was one. he, He was one of the first kind of educated at really prestigious universities and. Working yeah. in clinical centers that were well known to yeah. to come to this work and be curious about it and open minded about it in a different way.
0: Yeah, and to write in his books about the internal dialogue and struggles about your professional identity, especially mm-hmm. as a mental health practitioner. Mm-hmm. Like, what will people think? What do I think? What is my worldview now? All of these questions, right? But it happened to be that in a couple of months, he was. It um, was actually a, a student of his or protege of his was leading. Um, a workshop. And so I said, you know, okay, I, am interested. I'm, I trust it. I don't know if I trust it. I'm interested. I'm curious. Mm -hmm. And there was another workshop coming up like the next week. And it was a manifestation workshop. I had no idea what manifestation was, but I was like, you know, it sounds pretty positive. I think I need some positivity in my life. Why don't I try it? It turned out that the, this was not on their bio or profile, but it turned out the instructor was a medium, but she was also a trained psychologist And her abilities opened up when a loved one crossed. And I was like, okay, you you just, you can't make this up. Like it's it's incredible. And then from there, then I was led to development circles and very quickly people started requesting readings with me and kind of got out from development circles that I was pretty good at this and not that that's, you know, it's not an egoic statement. I think that it was really fueled by how fresh it was and how open, I guess I was. Mm-hmm. But it was also having lost my husband and by suicide, I was getting a lot of people who had gone through suicide loss, who had lost their husband or a very close proximate loved one. And were really looking for a medium who understood the grief side. That trajectory has since shifted. I imagine sometime in the future, I'll go back somehow to doing readings again or demonstrations. I'm not sure. Like I know it's in the future, but I practiced for over maybe a year and a half, two years even. And I still do it like informally and I still work with spirit in my own way. But And I say this, I guess, as I imagine some people who are listening have are on a development track for mediumship, having gone through a traumatic loss. And we were, I don't know if this is Amy, your experience as well, but I found that I needed to step back from it because being constantly immersed in holding space at my human side, my medium side could do this, but my human side, I was like reliving my grief constantly. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: Well, and it's a different
1: energy. I think like when people say, do I do it in my work? If it is, like, so loud that I can't resist it, yeah. yes. But otherwise, to me, it feels like a different way of of being in that space. Mm-hmm. Like, th- that I am, when I'm in that space, I'm not in the therapy space in right. the same way. And yeah. so I don't know if this is sort of what you're talking about, But but going back and forth in that, I think... Mm-hmm can be really difficult. And when I, it's not, it doesn't happen to me very often, but when it comes through, when I get information coming through, it is, it feels like I need to completely be a different being in some Mm -hmm. ways. Like what is coming to me? I cannot be a therapist in the way I'm used to being a therapist when Mm -hmm. medium when information from loved ones is coming through. It's like, Mm -hmm. it feels like this intense, like I just got to get it out. Yes. Um, and there's like a push, like, I can't even think. Yeah. Clearly.
0: Absolutely. And I think it's, it was a struggle for me between that of like when it just pours down, it pours down. And it was a struggle between that being that clear channel and then being a very recent young widow by suicide loss mm. of I just, if I show up with somebody, like I'm with you in your pain because I'm right. still in that pain too. And right. it was really hard for me going into that space again and also just like i mean feeling other people's grief that was still so familiar to mine i couldn't necessarily discern what was mine and what was someone else's that i was carrying and again it's different now three and a half years but this was in the first couple of years uh which i guess it still is the first couple of years but anyway yeah um, i know
1: i think about it it's only been three and a half years how much you've like done in that such a short period of time
0: yeah i it's all like just feeling into what I feel, what is leading me forward and not doing to do and just like trusting, trusting, trusting. And I think that going back, and I do want to say this for other people, So I work with several colleagues who are mediums who opened up to their abilities very early in grief and like, this is their work. This is their work. And it's And they don't have that same struggle as me that I had of, you know, discerning, you know, what is my grief? What is someone else's? And I think that's really important. One, because we all have different experiences in this work when we work spiritually and intuitively. And then the other is there are so many ways that we can use our mediumship. And I know that I couldn't do what I'm doing now. If I hadn't practiced, if I hadn't practiced as a medium one-on-one and even doing um, group demonstrations, these kinds of things, I needed to understand that side. And again, I still do it my own way now. Um, But it really opened the door to something that I'm really passionate about in the mediumship community is there are myriad, if not infinite ways that every individual person with these abilities, and again, I believe we all have them, can use them. And for me now, it's helping people learn how to tap into their own communication with their loved ones as they're moving through grief. So grieving with their person on the other side and then doing research. And when I do research, I do mediumship. It's wild. Like the last study that I did, I interviewed 31 people across the world who had had a mediumistic awakening when their loved one passed. And in most of the interviews, our loved ones came forth and it's like, OK, we're doing this. So, you know, your grandfather is here and he says, X, Y, Z and blah, blah, blah. Um, and yes, this is a very atypical way of doing research. And yes, we're also talking about mediumistic mystic awakening. So, of course, our loved ones would come in. And those kind of, and it was also the people, you know, doing the um, my participants. And it was this incredible, very communicative it was a like community-based participatory research in that we're working together. We've had the shared experience and our loved ones on the other side are too. And so there were 31 embodied people and maybe 31
1: disembodied people.
0: Oh my God, more than 31 disembodied. Goodness. <laughs> right, like,
1: it's, it's not just the ones everybody. that brought the mediumship in. It's also all the loved ones that are still yes. over there.
0: Yes. Yes. And so these are the ways that, that I am doing mediumship now of like, I don't know, it's almost a more kind of like integrated, seamless way of of working with spirit as a researcher, as an advocate, and as a teacher, which is really, you know, a beautiful path. But I would never have gone to this path if I hadn't gone a traditional path, first and foremost. Um, But it really, I think, speaks volumes to, and also the people that I worked with in my research. It's not everyone, one of my participants said he'd gone to one of my demonstrations and I had done a reading for him as well. And way before, and he said, he's like, Dr. Lenore, I don't want to do what you do. I don't want to be a medium. I just want to learn why this opened up. And I want to talk to my wife on the other side. Mm -hmm. And for some of us, I mean, that's why this opened up to build these relationships with our immediate loved one who crossed and then our entire team and family tree and everyone on the other side. So really opening up the mediumship space to say, you know, there are myriad personal and professional ways why mediumship happens and opens up. And there are so many ways that we can develop it. And part of it is just leaning into what feels right, what doesn't feel right. And that guides us on our path.
1: Mm-hmm. And I think that's so important, especially as mediumship. I was just talking about this. I. Just did an interview right before you, which is going to air right after you, um, on research and the research around mediumship. And it was a great interview. But what we were talking about was not every single person is meant to be a medium. Like, because the abilities open up for you doesn't mean that's now your your life calling. And I think that particularly in this world that this feels, you know, people will say, oh, you have the gift, Or you're able to do this. And there's this, I think, a little bit of ego that can get um, activated where it feels really exciting to be able to feel like you have a power that other people don't have. And then sometimes that drives people to do things that maybe they weren't meant to do and, and that can do harm to people, particularly in the grief space when you are really looking for that validation and that, like, Knowing, like like you were someone to validate. You knew the experiences were real, but you also wanted someone to validate and say, "Like yes, they are." And I mm-hmm. think it can really set people back on their grief journey if they go to someone who is not excellent at this. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it can be it can be detrimental to people.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I completely agree. And I'll say as well in in my experience. So there's, yeah, there's kind of the egoic side. But then what I really felt was like a responsibility. Because like, how could I have this and not sit with other people? And a lot of the people who came to me for readings, not all, but I would say probably around half, just anecdotally, um, I could, you know, know, when you sit with someone in a reading, if they are also highly intuitive, like you can just feel it, the energy, you just feel it. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people were coming for that validation of their own. I think they don't necessarily, like, it was like me, like, I don't know that's what I'm looking for, but that was, you know, an outcome. But the main thing with, with readings of why I did one-on-ones at first was like, I can't not do this. Like, how could I not? And, you know, most of them were oftentimes for free and just like, you know, people that, you know, I would, would meet with because I felt, Maybe that's my social worker, empath or Libra side. I don't know, but it's like, how could I have this and not help people? But it got to a point where I was like, I need to heal myself. I need to, and it felt, it feels amazing when we're doing readings and that high that you get from spirit is just, I mean, it's, it's infectious. It's incredible. It's healing, but it's also like, okay, then the come down from, it's like, I'm still in my reality of, I also have a human life to live. Um, And so I think it's just, again, just reiterating, it's like we all have a path and that path is forever shifting and changing. And that's so beautiful. And I really had to learn to, like, let go of what I thought it might be. And I also went back to, like, as a social worker, my heart and soul is research and speaking and teaching. I never... I always knew that my path was not to be a one-on-one therapist. So that makes sense that my journey is paralleled as, you know, working intuitively. It's really what I did before working in a very data-centered way, but now I also, or am anchored in intuitive light and spirituality. Mm -hmm. And that's really the substantive side. And of course it's propelled by grief. So
1: what is your, what is your research looking like now? You spoke about the one, um, study that you did. Can you share with us kind of the outcomes of the study and also what other
0: studies you're in the process of doing? Yes. Um, so I will say I am a one woman show now. I miss working in, actually, I, well, I say this tongue in cheek, but I miss the incredible support and resources you have in researching in academia and in policy organizations like oh my goodness doing all the analysis by hand and not having research assistants. so putting out there manifesting grants at a research team coming up but for now if if i had any ability or knowledge of research i would be in the trenches with you but i do not (laughs) Uh, it'll happen it also just makes me so grateful but also when you it's you're just in it, in the data, you're doing all of it, design, collection, analysis, write-up. It's like, you know, this data intimately. And it's also, again, a reflection of my lived experience.
1: I think I Um, blocked out, I did a qualitative dissertation and I think I've blocked all of that out. Like that was just (laughs) not, I am
0: much more on the clinical side of things, not my bag. Yeah, no, I don't blame you. It's, and I do qualitative primarily as well. And it's, it's, it is heavy lifting, um, but, and that so was before you- there was like transcription, yeah,
1: services and all of that. I like was typing our interviews by hand. Oh my gosh.
0: Yeah, I did. I'll, this is a total side note, but my dissertation, it was a qualitative one as well, um, dissertation. And it was in, I did it in Brazil. My data collection was in Brazil. So it was all in Portuguese. So I found, I had a research assistant to transcribe, but it was all by hand and all the, it was, yeah, it was wild. Um, but these are, it's like, these are the, the ins and outs of the research. And, and I love it because it just, it makes you, when you get to that point where it's like, oh my gosh, this is the meaning underneath. These are the big nuggets of what this means to someone and the purpose of why we share our stories. It's like light bulbs and qualitative research is just so rich and thick. Um, But I digress as going back to then the research that I'm doing now. So I have two studies that um, I'm writing up now that have concluded One, my first was, and this I have to say, it was over a year ago, and I felt like things were shifting, and and I knew that I was moving away from the one-on-one work, and I knew that I was being led back to research. So I took a break, and honestly, my brain could not have done research in those first few years of grief. Like, it just, I didn't have the cognitive space. Well, and I I think that
1: speaks to what your brain looks like when you experience a trauma.
0: Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. I mean, my short-term memory a hundred percent. You feel like, I felt like I was, you know, sometimes in a completely other world. I mean, sometimes I was, but, um, I mean leaving keys in the fridge and, you know, like forgetting how to spell easy, th- simple things. I mean, that's, that is what the brain under extreme shock and trauma it looks like. Um, but it was about a year ago and I just knew that I was being led back to research. And I just said, you know, give it to me, let it rain down, Bruno team, everyone I'm ready. And very quickly, Um, it came in a meditation, my first study. So I collected that. So I worked with 14 widows who were previous mediumship clients of mine. And before I was doing research and I contacted them and asked if they would be interested in and they are not practicing mediums or not practicing intuitives. They came to me as clients and I asked if they would be interested in a study looking at how ongoing mediumship interaction. So working with with mediums, plural, over time affected their grief process and mental health. So I did another reading for them um, for free. And so they'd at least had, everyone had at least had two readings by a medium, at least one myself, but most had seen other mediums as well. And this was over the course of a year, um, up to a year. And then we did an interview and it was looking at, looking at the grand scheme of everything that they had done in at least a year of grief. Some people had been grieving longer. Um, So counseling, seeing mediums, somatic work, yoga, the whole gamut of what anyone had done, um, prayer as well. Some people had a formal religion that they practiced. How does mediumship fit into that? And specifically, how do multiple readings with a medium fit into that? So there's this kind of, um, I don't know, narrative sometimes in the mediumship space of like, it's one last hello, or even worse, like it's a final goodbye. And that never sat well with me. To me, it was an open door, that first reading. It was like, oh my goodness, there's a whole world here that's opened up to me. Um, And so the findings from that study, they're incredible. These women are just, oh, just amazing. And again, we know each other. We've We now have known each other for several years. There's an incredible trust and rapport. So they were very open um, interviews. And it was by and large, again, anecdotally, I didn't look at this statistically. It's qualitative. So this is someone's opinion about their own experience, their own lived experience. But by and large, mediumship was, if not the most, then one of the most impactful um, tools that they used in moving through their grief. And it was kind of in in three different spaces. One, it helped them resolve the past. So if there were questions about their spouse's passing, um, some of them were very traumatic, sudden losses. So if there were questions around that, that helped resolve the questions that were there. But it also helped the women, very similar to me, but it helped them resolve and validate some of the things that they had gut instincts around. So there was clarity and closure. Goosebumps all over that, but there was clarity and closure around some of the questions and the pain about the very human aspect of loss and, and the loss of their spouse. In the present, it, I mean, I gave confirmation and hope. Like I know, I feel him. He's still here, or is he still here? I want to believe he is. I dream about him. I think I hear him. I think I feel him. And so, working with a medium and getting those evidential pieces that, again, no medium would ever know. Only the couple, or only a few people that gave confirmation that yes, they are here. And that was a source of strength. It's like, it's your spouse. We're not ready to move on, quote unquote, or move forward. And maybe we never are. And like my relationship with Bruno is very different. Like he'll always be a part of me. And so this, again, in the grief world of this understanding of like, we move forward when we let them go. No, like they're always going to be a part of us. And even people from our way past that haven't passed away are still a part of us. And so that's just such an erroneous and false way of looking at, at grief and loss. So again, it gave this like really beautiful confirmation that they're still here. And that was a source of strength that they could draw on as they're opening up to the future. And then the other side of the, uh, the third kind of layer of this that working with mediums over time did is they saw themselves and they experienced how their own healing opened up and how their loved ones' healing opened up over time with each time they they met with a medium. So if it was two meetings over a year or whatever it is, it gave that confirmation that they're working together, that they they saw their own progression and healing over time. And in that, looking forward, they also got insights for what's to come. And this was so hopeful. So this would like there would be a nugget, for example, a medium might share of, you know, I see you doing XYZ in the future. And it was something kind of like swimming around in in the woman in the participant, and she's like, "Oh my gosh! Now that you name that, okay, I'm going to look into that." Mm-hmm. And it could be something like taking an art class because it makes your heart feel good, or it could be something like an insight on your career, or it could be something with their kids. So like these incredible insights. Or so that was
1: I was just at a read a group reading, and it was about a partner,
0: a future partner. Yeah, and that can be hard to hear, mm-hmm. and it can be hopeful, like. Yeah, I started hearing that from mediums very early on and I saw it in my own meditations and I was like, give me a long time before that even comes right. out. But just having that in, you know, in the back of your heart and some for some it's it's what they need. And, you know, that that plays out how it is. But yeah, exactly. It's like what's happening in the future. Mm-hmm. And then the other study that I I presented at the um, 65th annual parapsychological conference in Norway last summer in August, which is an incredible conference Um, I interviewed 31 people across the world that had had a medium mystic awakening like I had. And again, it kind of debunks this. I don't think that this is the case for everyone that we want ongoing relationships, but there's kind of this understanding that if you have contact with your loved ones on the other side, it's one way. So it's only them sending signs. Mm. And this research showed that it's interactive and it's a dialogue. It can be, especially as we learn to lean into it. And then it's ongoing. So it's not just a single sign. They're gone. It's, it's an ongoing relationship. It shifts and changes over time. Like Bruno was not as near me as, as he was was in the beginning, but also, yeah. And it's, and that's okay. And, and we're, we're both evolving and shifting. Um, but yeah, so that research really showed the healing and immense growth that comes from working with our loved ones on the other side.
1: And where is your research? Where's the research taking you next? What's what is what's on the horizon?
0: Yes. Um, Okay, so looking forward, I, so my background is in evaluation research, right? So before what I did was give me a program, I will assess what it does for someone's human well-being. That's what I did at the United Nations when I was there and and working with non-for-profits. So I know going forward, I'm going to be graduating, I'll say, or elevating the programs that I have now, which are teaching people how to connect to their loved ones on the other side and really formulate it in a evidence-based over the entire intervention, a clinical intervention for people who are moving through grief. So right now the program is pieces that are so evidence-based pieces of intervention, such as, you know, certain types of meditation. We know that this has, the evidence shows that this has an impact. But what my next step will be, we'll be going into more of a clinical programmatic evaluation and looking at the program overall. So having people who begin the program, we have a pretest, we have a baseline, moving through this program of learning how different ways to communicate with their loved ones on the other side at the outs or at the other end then of the program, what are the effects on their grief problems? their mental health, but also on their relationship with their loved one on the other side. So I'll be moving more into programmatic research and looking at grants right now um, and manifesting my clinical team to help me with this. Um, and then I'll continue doing exploratory studies as well. But I really am moving more into intervention-based, going way back full circle, but interve- intervention-based evaluation and saying, this is not woo-woo, this is not a figment of our imagination. These are evidential, data-centered, incredibly transformative ways of moving through life, and especially through moments of incredible pain, like the loss of a close loved one. And... I mean, hand to heart, I wouldn't have survived if I didn't have this connection with Bruno and if I hadn't explored the practices that I have. And I know that I'm not alone in that, both with the people that I work with and then just people who I meet who have had similar shared experiences.
1: Yeah, I can't. I mean, this is such important work. And it it, for me, too, like my grief was not it wasn't. mother it wasn't a parent it wasn't a a spouse it wasn't a child but it was a a caregiver who it was my aunt who played a very important role in my life and had significant meaning to me and the meaning I had made of it and I was really plagued by a lot of anxiety as a result of her death and I think like had this not opened up for me it it would have I, I think I would still be plagued with crippling anxiety as a result and it just shifted all of that for me um, and so it's such amazing work that you're doing. And I should say here that you also put me in touch with a woman who does spiritual mediumship and um, is a therapist. And she and I are working together to develop some sort of program. We're not exactly sure what it's going to look like. We just started working on it, Kate and I, um, that is going to help clinicians address when these things open up for them in their practice, how they want to use it. Do they want to be a medium? Do they want to just use their intuition? What are the ethics around this? So you you have spurred us as well um, to, to think about how this can be used in clinical work.
0: Amazing. There was an article, I think I sent it, no, I know I sent it to you, Amy. There's an yeah, article. Yeah, the Guardian article that came out last month about this boom that's happening in the clinical clinical mental health world of this boom of clients requesting some sort of spiritual orientation. And there's a clear distinction. It's not necessarily religious. For some people, it may be. And that tends to be how we look at spiritual clinical work in the past. It's somehow infused with with a religious orientation. But it's really kind of embracing this, quote unquote, new age, if we would say, but I would say more intuitive practices. Um, I mean, psychology today, which is the main register, it's international, but it's the main register in the U.S. of registered clinicians. There is actually a delineation of people, of clinicians who are practicing in this way, bringing in spirituality. We're going to see it. I know that we are. And it's so incredible, the work that you're doing, because it's really making it okay for clinicians to say like, no, I'm not doing something that's unethical or beyond my code of ethics. Um, And I can say this as someone who needed that. I needed someone when I was looking for my grief therapist and thank goodness, I know that Bruno put my two therapists on my path because they were so open to this, but I needed somebody who would just get down in the dirt with me and be human.
1: Mm -hmm. And And can you imagine what it would have done if the therapist dismissed your experience or said like, yeah, that's, I don't, I don't really buy into that or that's not, possible. Or if on some level you sensed that, like they might not have even needed to say it, but on some level you sensed that they weren't um, supportive of of this interaction that you continued to have with Bruno. Oh, Uh, you're just bypassing your grief. mm -hmm. That's not real. You need to let go. You need to move forward. All of those things. Like Mm -hmm. that would have been so detrimental.
0: Yes. And unfortunately- And not true,
1: frankly, but-
0: And not true. And some of the people that I've worked with in my research and clients as well have had exactly that experience. And then there's a whole other layer then of wounds. There was an article, I did a presentation at another conference a few months ago of as a mental health practitioner who underwent a mediumistic experience while opening in the context of grief. What my clinicians did that was helpful. And it's almost like a roadmap from the experiencer's point of view of what was so helpful, what they did. So for example, we put together, my it was very kind of intuitive and innate process, but we put together this gauge of, are my experiences helpful? Are they enriching? Are they bringing levity and light and clarity? Or are they doing some sort of harm? And there was never a point where there was any sort of harm either to myself or anyone else. And it was this like opening up that happened through it. And that was our kind of, you know, dichotomous gauge of, is this okay? And it was more for me, my therapist, and we're still in touch. And she's like, I wasn't worried about you. I knew you were on your path. I was was there to hold space with you. But it was for me of like, is this okay? Is this safe for me Mm -hmm. when everything else feels unsafe around me? Right. so it's this dialogue, I think, as well, of people who've been in these positions as the, as the clients, um, And this is an article I'm writing up as well for another academic journal of like a roadmap from the experiencer's perspective of what was so helpful that my clinicians did and what can other clinicians do to replicate that.
1: Well, and it's so interesting because I don't think that I sometimes ask this just in an intake. It, it depends what someone's presenting with. But certainly anytime I'm dealing with someone who's coming to me specifically for grief, Sometimes they'll come to me and over the process of our time of working together, a loved one will die. But I always ask, what are your belief? What's your belief system about what happens when we die? And like, that is an opening because then I, I know not that I'm directing the conversation, but I know if I'm hearing things or I can listen for them dropping little tidbits that might say, I do, I had this experience, but they're too afraid to say. So that, that question I think gives such an opening to people to say, actually, I mean, they might still be a little bit trepidatious, but once Mm -hmm. you ask the question, it gives people the space to say, actually, I don't, I don't know. I feel like there's something more. I'm not quite sure. Or I've had people say, I believe when you die, you die. And that's it. And so like, if I ever get a whisper, I'm not saying to that person, I think your loved one is here. I'm keeping that very quiet because that is not their belief system and it is not my job to impose that on them. My job is to help hold space for them to explore these things. Whereas if I have people who have said, oh, I know that my, I know our loved ones live on, I've felt my dad or mom or whomever. And if you ever hear anything, can you let me know? I'm like, absolutely. Because they have now opened up that that door. So I think that, There's so many ways clinicians can be really thoughtful and, um, mindful about how they're not, if, even if you do believe this, how they're not imposing those beliefs, but bringing it into the work in a way that can be really healing.
0: Oh, so beautiful. Yes.
1: Well, I know we need to wrap up. Um, we're going to talk again. (laughs) Of course. Um, where, tell us about where people can find your work. Um, you are, let me be clear, you are not doing readings right now. <laughs> I know you get a lot of requests for readings. So I, that yeah. is not that is not happening right now, but it might be in the future. So where can people follow you if you they're interested, curious about everything that you're doing?
0: Yes, so my website is com. And my Facebook and Instagram are both at DR, Dr. Lenore Matthew. Um, You can find my online programs. I have an asynchronous self-paced program that I'm just so in love with called Continued Connection. It's 15 different types of practices to learn how to develop a relationship and contact your loved one on the other side. And it's in a framework that I'm developing a new approach to grief called Continued Connection, which says that moving forward with our loved ones is an ongoing process.
2: Why don't more infant formula companies use organic grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart, a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Hold up. What was that?
0: We move through grief with our loved ones on the other side. And then I do at least monthly, sometimes bi-monthly workshops as well, which are live. And those are also online. Um, and then all of my articles and research and publications and other previous interviews are also on my website.
1: Well, thank you so much. You're a light. You just glow. And you. the minute we connected, I was like, where have like- you been all my life? <laughs> likewise, <laughs> literally, likewise. like, where were you when I was where you were three years ago? Like, what is happening in this world? So I'm so glad to know you. And so thrilled to be able to share your work with the world. It is, it's going to change the paradigm, I, I believe. So thank you.
0: Thank you, Amy. And thank you for having me. I just, I think the world of you, I love what you're doing. I'm so grateful that we're connected and I know there are many, many years to come as we move forward in this work. So thank I you so much. I hope so, I hope <laughs> so. Thanks, Lenore. Thank you.
1: Like what you heard today and wanna to hear more? Wondering what comes next and what it all means? Head over to Apple Podcast, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, or anywhere you get your podcasts and hit subscribe. Also, if you could take a minute to rate and review my podcast, I would really appreciate it. Stay tuned as we continue to explore life, death, and the space between.